Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Dino Balanescu. I'm currently a PGY2 internal medicine resident and future chief resident at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan. I'm also a cardio nerds fellow in House Eindhoven and passionate about cardio-oncology. Thanks for tuning into this tremendous case from star guests from Thomas Jefferson University. In this episode, Drs. Sean Dickdan, Rachel Debenham, and Harsh Doshi teach us all about a very rare cause of cardiogenic shock. Stay tuned for a very special eCPR segment featuring Dr. Enrico Amirati, an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist in Milan, Italy. In fact, for more insights from Dr. Amirati, check out episodes 29 and 30, which feature an in-depth discussion on myocarditis with Dr. Amirati, along with Drs. Joanne Lindenfeld and Javid Moslehi. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting The Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Without further ado, join us in the Cardio Nerds Intensive Care Unit and learn more about the management of cardiogenic shock. Hello, Cardio Nerds. We are just fantastically lucky to be with three amazing master clinicians, Dr. Sean Dickdan, Dr. Hirsch Doshi, and Dr. Rachel Debenham from Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. Guys, welcome to the show, and would you do us a huge favor and introduce yourselves? My name is Hirsch Doshi. I'm actually a first-year cardiology fellow at Jefferson. Very excited to be here. This is my first podcast that I've been a part of. I'm looking forward to getting to know you guys. I'm Rachel Debenham. I am also a first-year cardiology fellow at Thomas Jefferson, also a first-time recording on a podcast. So first time, long time. My name is Sean Dickdan. This is my second time on the Cardio Nerds. It was an honor to record with you guys for episode 90 as part of the fellowship case series. It was a lot of fun and I'm excited to uh, do it again. Sean, Hirsch, Rachel, it is such a pleasure to have you guys on the podcast. Rachel, I'm so glad you said first time, long time, because that takes me back to the core of Philadelphia where you guys are all training. And I am originally from, it's a sports town. I bleed green. I root on the Philadelphia Eagles. I trust the process with the 76ers. And I'm just so excited to be here with you guys. Last time we were on the podcast, we went to Independence Beer Garden. We had a lot of fun across from Liberty Bell, across from Independence Hall. We're going to leave Independence Beer Garden and go somewhere that Hirsch and Rachel decide. The pandemic has really hurt our ability to explore Philadelphia as much as I would like to, but... I do spend a lot of time eating donuts at Reading Tournament Market at Byler's to be specific. So what do you think, Hirsch? Should we share some donuts? Yeah, Philly is the city of foodies if you love food. I love getting my kati rolls, which are just like Indian wraps at Masala Kitchen, which is in Center City. Go there every week. Love going to Lincoln Financial Field, especially since I'm a Cowboys fan. So got to rep my Cowboys pride in in, in uh, the setting of Eagles fans. And then the other thing I like about Philly is there are a lot of good hiking trails, which, you know, I've been doing a lot of in the pandemic, getting out a little bit at least. 
I was going to say, you know, Dan, I don't know if we can continue this podcast. I don't typically do podcasts with Cowboys fans, especially <laughs> if we're recording from Philadelphia. But Hirsch and the team at Thomas Jefferson seem like such a wonderful group here. So I think we can continue. Yeah, and I'd say definitely, you know, a moment on the lips forever on the hips for those donuts. But if that is a harbinger of me memorizing all the things you're about to teach me forever, I'll take it. I think it's worth it. And then we'll walk off the hike. We'll do some hike later. Why don't we get started and hit us up with an amazing case that will teach us a lot about cardiology and also about patient care. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Dan. So I'll start with our case. I'll preface it by saying that this is a patient that I first encountered as a resident because I did my residency here at Thomas Jefferson. And the case goes back a couple of years. Our patient is Mr. J. He's a 36-year-old man with a medical history of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. He presents to the emergency department with progressive dyspnea. His index presentation was at a nearby hospital six weeks prior. He presented there with dyspnea, and an echocardiogram showed a reduced ejection fraction of 30%. His workup included a left heart catheterization, which showed no coronary artery disease, and a right heart catheterization that showed elevated filling pressures. He was diagnosed with a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. He received some IV diuresis and was eventually discharged on goal-directed medical therapy. He was also given a wearable cardioverter defibrillator. He now presents to us with progressive dyspnea over the past two weeks. He endorses orthopnea, PND, and worsening leg swelling. He states he had some minimal improvement after the past discharge, but symptoms returned. He denied palpitations, presyncope, or syncope. He denied any recent febrile illness, cough, sore throat, or myalgias. He also doesn't complain of dysphagia or dyspepsia. A bedside echocardiogram done in the emergency department shows a severely reduced ejection fraction. Going through his medical history, the only medical problem he has is a newly diagnosed non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. He's never had any surgeries before. His current medications include Carvedilol, 3.125 milligrams twice a day, Losar. 12.5 milligrams daily, spironolactone 25 milligrams daily, furosemide 40 milligrams daily, and a potassium supplement. He has no drug allergies. His family history is significant for hypertension and hyperlipidemia in his mother and hypertension and diabetes in his father. He has no family history of coronary disease, autoimmune disease, unexplained syncope, or heart failure. He works in the food industry. He's an undocumented immigrant from South America. He has lived in an apartment in South Philadelphia with his wife and three children for several years. He denies any alcohol, tobacco, or other drug use. So a lot of important presentation and important clinical history here for this patient. What are your guys' initial thoughts about a patient who comes in with this sort of presentation? Yeah, so this seems like a patient who was discharged on some pretty good guideline-directed medical therapies. He's on three of the medications that we always think about. We think about beta blocker, we think about ACE or ARB, and then also coronalactone. And he seems to be getting worse on these, despite being on these medications. So that's always concerning for me when I see someone on good medications who's not really improving, especially when they're so young. You know, Rachel, I completely agree with what you're saying here. This is a really interesting presentation. It's not uncommon for us to see this kind of presentation in cardiology. I have some initial thoughts when I hear this. So we have this young man that was essentially diagnosed with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. That's such a broad category, right? We still don't have a diagnosis for what the non-ischemic cardiomyopathy exactly is. And a lot of times we don't end up with a diagnosis, but we don't know what kind of workup was done to elucidate the etiology. At the same time, he was discharged on appropriate guideline-directed therapy. And as Rachel and Sean, you both indicated, he's worsening. Now, when a young person works 
worsens on guideline-directed therapy or even just worsens in terms of their heart failure, I get very concerned. And part of that is because young patients with cardiomyopathy tend to fall off a cliff. They're slowly, slowly chugging along. They're doing okay. And maybe they have minimal symptoms. And then, boom, they're sick. They're in your emergency department. They can end up in your CCU. So my antenna are certainly up. And this kind of subacute worsening over a few weeks and now noting clinical heart failure symptoms has me highly concerned that this patient has a diagnosis that we still need to elucidate, but also need to consider whether we need to be more aggressive in terms of the management for this patient. Specifically, is this patient going to need mechanical support? We're going to get to that story here in a little bit, but my ears are certainly up for these kind of patients that are young that decompensate in terms of heart failure. Now, you're noting is an undocumented immigrant from South America that, of course, will raise our radar for cardiomyopathies like Chagas cardiomyopathies or other infectious ideologies like protozoan or fungal infections endemic to that area. So simultaneously, we're doing a fast and slow thinking process. The fastest, we have to acutely assess whether this patient is sick, is going to need more invasive therapies, are they heading towards cardiogenic shock? And then the slow process is we still haven't determined the etiology. And so I'm trying to place my evaluation of the patient in those two categories. Dan, what do you think? I definitely agree. And even when you think the case is closed, you know, you've clocked in a diagnosis, right? And then you try a therapy and that therapy does not go as expected. That's, you know, raising your flags that there's something deeper that I need to look into and maybe change the diagnosis. But this is just a reminder, again, as everyone's pointing out, that non-ischemic cardiomyopathy is not a case-closed diagnosis. And particularly when time course plays such an important role in figuring out the diagnosis of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and points us to the next steps of evaluation, having this tempo is something that's quite alarming, but also may give us an answer that's going to be coming relatively soon instead of having to wait many months or years to figure out this diagnosis. So when you have a patient that presents like this, again, a recent diagnosis of cardiomyopathy, getting worse, young, and we're nervous about falling off the cliff that Karen talked about, we definitely need to pay attention to Vital's physical exam and dig deeper and get a good appreciation for what this patient's baseline status is coming into the hospital so that we can clock hour by hour what's going on with this patient to recognize subtle changes. As this patient's young, he's going to have his other homeostasis mechanisms in play to keep him perfusing, right? We need to be particularly Sherlock Holmesy about this. So I'm excited to hear more about the physical exam and vitals from this particular patient's admission now that he's come back to the hospital. Absolutely. Thank you guys for going through it like that. I, I agree. I'm also worried about this presentation. And I'm excited to get some more objective information. So the patient presented with a normal temperature of 98.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Heart rate was 110 beats per minute. Blood pressure was 105 over 73 millimeters of mercury. He was breathing 20 times per minute and actually saturating a 98% on room air. On physical exam, he did appear uncomfortable but he was alert and oriented to person, place, and time. He had jugular venous distension with a JVP estimated about 20 centimeters of water. His cardiac auscultation revealed tachycardia and a grade two out of six holosystolic murmur at the left lower sternal border. His point of maximal impulse was slightly laterally displaced. His lung sounds were normal and a wearable cardioverter defibrillator was in place. His abdominal exam was benign. His lower extremity showed trace peripheral edema uh, and his toes and fingers were cool, but hands and ankles were warm. Do you guys have any takeaways just from these vitals and physical exam findings? So, you know, some things that are very concerning that make me lean towards this patient's sick and needs urgent or immediate attention would be the fact that this patient has a heart rate of 110. You know, in a patient who has decompensated heart failure, you think he has decompensated heart failure. Being tachycardic isn't very conducive to their hemodynamics or cardiodynamics. And the other thing that 
leads you to consider as part of your differential is, has he been tachycardic this whole time? And is that causing his non-ischemic cardiomyopathy? Is it tachycardia induced? The other thing that is concerning as well in terms of physical exam is his JVPs elevated at 20 centimeters, which is a very specific marker of volume overload. And more importantly, just his toes and fingers are cool. If you think of the four boxes of heart failure, it seems like he's in between warm and wet and cold and wet right now. What do you guys think? You know, Hersh, I would agree with you. Of course, you know, we're going to pay attention to the vital signs. We see that the patient's tachycardic, possibly a compensatory process for a low output state that we're seeing on exam with cool extremities. And clearly, he's demonstrating evidence that he's likely hypervolemic in the setting of an elevated jugular venous pressure. Now, whether that's a manifestation of specifically a murmur or a gross volume overload, you know, we're getting some clues from the examination, but we're going to find out more as we go through our further diagnostics. You know, one of the important things, though, that I see here is I'm quickly trying to pay attention for how much of this patient's presentation looks like left-sided heart failure versus right-sided heart failure versus both. There's clear evidence that the patient has clinical heart failure. And I'm looking for signs. Does this patient also have significant right-sided? Because that may affect our differential as we evaluate the non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. Clearly has elevated jugular venous pressure, but is there ascites? Is there significant peripheral edema? Is this patient been describing early satiety? These are all things that are also paying attention in terms of the exam. And we know that he's also narrowing his pulse pressure. It doesn't quite meet the criteria, but it it is narrow. So there's clearly signs of low perfusion. There's evidence of hypervolemia, and I'm concerned. So I think the next steps is we should hear some of the next diagnostics. You know, Hirsch brings up a really good point about tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy as part of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy causes. But again, taking the patient in context with this patient's relatively low pulse pressure, he's going to have really two main mechanisms to compensate if he's in a hypoperfused state. Number one is he's going to jack up his heart rate, right? Because that will really significantly increase his cardiac output. And then number two is he'll jack up his systemic vascular resistance to try to keep his blood pressure afloat, which obviously we know is going to be at a detriment of his forward flow, which may put him into a cycle that we may need to bail him out of. That's something that I'd be very concerned about this patient. So definitely, I think now is a time we know that this patient's sick. We know that he's decompensating. Let's take up the tempo and get some more information so we can basically intervene on this patient. So moving on, the next aliquot I have is the presenting EKG. This EKG was read as sinus tachycardia with a heart rate of 110. It has left atrial abnormality. There is low voltage in the limb leads, and there are Q waves in anteroceptal leads. Looking through this EKG, there are a couple of things that actually popped into my head. So for, for this patient, the low voltage specifically can sometimes mean sort of damping of the electrical signal. And I think of this happening in patients who are either very obese or have uh, big lung volumes in patients who have bad COP. Alternatively, if it's not, if it's actually related to primary cardiac etiology, I think of things like cardiac infiltration or really significant cardiac edema, something again that's going to sort of dampen our electrical signals in the heart. And then the other concerning thing are the Q waves. So in this patient, lead V1 and V2 have pretty notable Q waves, which always perk my ears up for ischemia. You know, I'm always worried about coronary artery disease causing Q waves or previous MI, especially in a patient with a heart attack or a patient that may have previously had a heart attack and might have an ischemic cardiomyopathy. Now, Q waves can also be seen sometimes in infiltration. So if this is possibly the etiology of the patient's current presentation, it might not be Q waves from scar tissue, it might be Q waves from infiltration from something else. 
moving on to his lab values, I think he has some pretty interesting testing was done. So to start, we'll just say that his creatinine and BUN were normal at 1.2 and 22. His CBC showed a hemoglobin of 15 and a white count of 9.6. His LFTs did show a mild transaminitis with an AST of 56 and an ALT of 112. A troponin, pro-BNP, and inflammatory markers and then lactate were all elevated. His initial high-sensitivity troponin was 216, which on repeat two hours later was 209. His pro-BNP was greater than 7,000. His presenting lactate was 3.3. And like I mentioned, his ESR and CRP were both elevated. He did have on admission a initial lab workup, which involved an HIV, TSH, ferritin, ANA, a urine drug screen, and an SPEP. And all those returned normal or negative. We have this patient who is trying to compensate, and in some ways he is. You know, you have evidence here of hypoperfusion. Your lactate is 3.3. That is not reassuring. As we talked about, these patients are at risk of falling off the cliff, so to speak. And so we already have an elevated lactate. But at the same time, he's managing to perfuse his kidneys despite probably high venous hypertension from his congestion. But you are seeing markers of congestion, elevated liver enzymes, which may also be from a hyperperfused state. But then you also have this pro-BMP that's showing evidence of elevation. There's evidence of cardiac damage that are, that's from high LVEDP or potentially as you're building a case for an infiltrative process that's rapidly developing, which is making my spidey senses go up. And so these labs are pointing us in the direction that this is a good opportunity to hopefully intervene on this patient and get a better outcome, but not completely reassuring and something that, again, we got to continue acting on. Agree with Dan completely. And, you know, Sean, I just want to commend you for putting together such a succinct and wonderful presentation for this patient because we're really getting a picture of who's showing up to the emergency department here. And for our listeners, I just want to reiterate that all these images will be available on the CardioNerds website. One just small point is, as Dan mentioned, and Sean, you mentioned as well, you know, there's relatively low voltage in the limb leads. There's QAs, which can be suggestive of a cardiomyopathy and specific an infiltrative or an inflammatory process. We have elevated nonspecific inflammatory markers. And so while we look at the EKG for not just low voltage in the setting of infiltrative process, we should also be looking for any effect on the conduction system itself. So I should looking for PR prolongation, fascicular blocks, bundle branch blocks, any evidence of ectopic beats, because that will also inform the next steps for us. Is this a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy that's a predominantly arrhythmogenic? Is it a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy that's predominantly presenting only as cardiogenic shock? And not to say only as cardiogenic shock, because no one wants cardiogenic shock as their presentation. But it'll inform exactly kind of some of the next diagnostics. So Sean, Rachel, Hirsch, what did you guys do next? So there is one more piece of initial information before we admitted the patient and did a more invasive cardiac workup. But his initial chest x-ray I thought was interesting in how uninteresting it was. So his chest x-ray shows normal lung volumes without any significant pulmonary edema, no consolidation, and no apparent pneumothorax. This is just a reminder to me that the chest x-ray doesn't always reflect volume status accurately or how uh, decompensated the patient's presentation of heart failure is. For example, if it's extraordinarily acute, perhaps the patient hasn't developed significant pulmonary edema yet, or on the alternate end of the spectrum in patients who have really severe chronic heart failure, they have built up such significant lymphatics by their pulmonary vasculature that they don't typically develop the pulmonary edema, the interstitial fluid that we're used to seeing on chest x-rays. So again, it's pretty normal, which you know is surprising, but maybe an interesting piece of information. 
Totally agree with you, Sean. The volume that you see on a chest X-ray in the lungs is like that third space volume that would accumulate after you have high pressures for a significant period of time and the lymphatics are overwhelmed and can't absorb it. But from a symptom perspective, we know that the patient sometimes will have dyspnea just by having full vasculature, not just having the alveoli that are full. And the reason is because there is congestion. And so even though you have clear air spaces, you're not having that delivery system of that nice, fast river-like pattern of blood flow that you would normally expect. So you may not have spilt over onto the banks of the river, shall we say, but you're still in a state where you're not delivering the oxygen and all those goodies that the blood delivers in the most efficacious way possible. And so that's why you can still have symptoms prior to having frank hypoxia and pulmonary edema. At least that's how I think about it. I'm sure Tony Brew has done uh, more of a uh, deep dive into this. I love not being spilled over over onto the river banks, even though the river is flooding. I think that's a perfect analogy. Sean, you just want to, just for our listeners, summarize where we're at? So this is a 36-year-old man with a past medical history of recently diagnosed non-ischemic cardiomyopathy who presents with subacute worsening despite goal-directed medical therapy who appears to be close to shock. Just taking a step back, whenever I have a new patient with HEFREF, I always go back to one of my favorite schemas, which is the schema that I'm pretty sure Amit presented on the clinical problem solvers. And I'm sad he's not here today as we're going to go through it for our patients. So for our patient, I think uh, it's first most important to mention that he had that normal left heart catheterization at the prior hospital, because that's the first piece of information that I want to make sure just based on the prevalence of ischemic cardiomyopathy and how common it is, you know, it's important to evaluate those coronaries and make sure that's not our ED because sometimes it is surprisingly missed. So the fact that he had a left heart catheterization is reassuring that there's no underlying coronary atherosclerosis. It doesn't rule out things like a dissection or a coronary embolism, but those things are rare. And while we'll keep them in the back of our mind, it doesn't really quite fit with what's going on with this patient. So that moves us over into our other bucket of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, which as you guys already pointed out, is a pretty big bucket and worth parsing out to see what's really going on with this patient. And in the schema that I remember Amit presenting, he breaks down the non-ischemic cardiomyopathies into bad loading conditions bad rhythm conditions, myocardial problems, or idiopathic problems. And for our patient, Hirsch already pointed out that he was tachycardic. And while we think this may be a compensatory mechanism, which is sort of typical in heart failure to get that cardiac output up, you know, you always got to be weary that a patient isn't having significant tachycardia with elevated heart rates and and other arrhythmias like atrial arrhythmias or, or even sometimes ventricular arrhythmias or significant PVC burden. Loading conditions for this patient. So, you know, we'll get a hopefully an echo soon to evaluate any valvular pathology, but we don't really have any history of severe hypertension. So I'm not really sure about whether or not this patient has some bad loading conditions. And that moves us into our other bucket, the biggest bucket, and the bucket that I think is the most interesting, which is primary myocardial problems. And for this patient, he has a lot of significant possibilities. So I'll start by saying that we already mentioned his social history has him in a region in South America, so a possible area that is endemic for Chagas disease, for trypanosoma cruzi. And for this patient, I want to parse that out a little bit because it is really a tempting diagnosis in someone who's young and who comes in and has an unexplained non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. For Chagas disease, I really break it down into is this patient having an acute presentation of Chagas or a chronic presentation? And for the acute presentation, I really think of patients who were infected in the past couple of weeks. I think there's about a one to two week incubation period. And then they can present sometimes in cardiogenic shock, but can present with HEFREF in the next couple of weeks to months. And then that's for our acute Chagas. And then for 
I think what we're all a little more familiar with is more chronic Chagas. So a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy that becomes progressively symptomatic and might be associated with some of the GI symptoms that we know about. You know, we know that our patient didn't have any significant dysphagia or dyspepsia. And the acuity of this doesn't really strike me for chronic Chagas disease. And because he's been living in the United States for such a long period of time, I find it unlikely that he became inoculated here in the US. It's really a tempting diagnosis. I'm not sure that that's what's going on here. We did rule out a lot of other causes. So we ruled out thyroid pathology. We ruled out HIV cardiomyopathy. We don't really have any other exposures to known drugs. His UDS was negative and he didn't really endorse any alcohol intake. Genetic causes are always possible, but again, he didn't have that remarkable of a family history. Moving forward down to my other things, the next big bucket that I'm worried about are either autoimmune or infiltrative cardiomyopathies. These can be significant and present with cardiogenic shock. Our patient may very well be and require relative immediate interventions. We already have some significant evidence of infiltration with the EKG findings, with the low voltage and the antraceptal Q waves. And I think that's going to be another interesting assessment when we get our echocardiogram and when we get our heart catheterizations. What do you guys think about that schema and, and where we went with the possible causes of this patient? Sean, I feel like every person that works in a hospital or a clinic that's evaluating HEFREF should just have you on their shoulder, kind of just citing the schema to them to work through these kind of patients. That was perfect. And I don't have too much more to add because that was just so well done. But, you know, just a couple of brief things and specifically about this patient. And I agree with you about thinking about the autoimmune and the inflammatory processes. Given that the patient's inflammatory markers were elevated, this was a patient that didn't respond to typical therapy. And that's my key learning point here from what you're presenting is that this was a patient that was on the typical guideline-directed therapy and did not do well. So when that happens, my bucket, again, specifically narrows towards those inflammatory cardiomyopathies and specifically thinking about myocarditis and myocardial diseases. Of course, Chagas disease is a consideration in this kind of patient, but I'm also now broadly thinking about this patient as a myocardial issue and specifically inflammatory problems. And then going back to what we had presented and thinking, well, what did the patient's medications include? Did they include something that could lead to myocarditis? Did the patient's labs indicate that there was something beyond just an inflammatory process was there significant eosinophilia, which could indicate potentially a drug reaction or even a eosinophilic myocarditis, as you can see on the schema that is on clinical problem solvers. So again, I'm now taking the schema and applying it back to the information that we have to further then guide what we're going to do next. So Sean, you want to walk us through your next steps here? So in looking at this patient, I also remembered going back and listening to the episodes on myocarditis that you guys did, which were amazing. And I think the patient that you had presented had a fulminant lymphocytic myocarditis, so something probably from a viral etiology. But the presentation really was similar to our patient here, Mr. J. And so I just want to take a moment to pause and say that the first pillar that you guys present is building a clinical suspicion for myocarditis. And I think it's important to note that right now, my suspicion for myocarditis for some inflammatory condition of the myocardium causing this patient's tenuous hemodynamic status. I'm very concerned and I'm very suspicious. And as we continue to go through the steps that you guys have laid out before us there, build that suspicion to decide on an endomyocardial biopsy, three, manage any acute cardiac injury, and then manage chronic cardiac problems and then treat the myocarditis. So I'm going to keep those things in the back of my mind as we go through our case. First of all, we're, we're totally honored that you're plugging some really, really fun episodes that we had done back in the day. Folks, check out episode 31, Fulminant Myocarditis with Cardiogenic Shock. And then we actually did a follow-up episode 32, which is the patient perspective. Our good friends of the show and patient Chaz Miller and his wife, Julie Miller, came on the show and discussed their saga of cardiogenic shock and how you know it was to have a spouse going through such a critical illness, how their children handle it. So really, really important episodes. Definitely check out. 
you know, this approach, the five principles of myocarditis actually is Amit's brainstorm. And you can see the, the schematic that we put together. It really, really helped me contextualize myocarditis and a plan of attack for making the diagnosis and then walking me through how I'm going to treat the diagnosis and make sure that the evaluation yields a high yield and we get the diagnosis right ASAP. So definitely throw it back to you, Sean, about the initial management steps, keeping all of this in mind. What happened? Thanks a lot, Dan. So the first things that we did for this patient were based on some of his symptoms and his exam. He got some IV diuretics when he was in the emergency department. We ordered a transthoracic echocardiogram and we decided against any further ischemic evaluation since he had a normal left heart catheterization about two months ago. The team did order an urgent right heart catheterization and placement of a pulmonary artery catheter. And then in addition to the previous testing that we performed on admission, they ordered testing for Chagas disease and they started the discussion about having that endomyocardial bias. So as he was being admitted to the CCU for monitoring, Rachel's going to give us some more information about some of the advanced cardiac testing, and I'm going to I'm going to pass it off to you, Rachel. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is the transthoracic echocardiogram. I feel like when I see this sort of patient show up in the emergency room, this is the first bit of information I really want to see what their heart looks like. It's, you know, why we got into cardiology. So once it was finally done, it did show that his left atrium was severely dilated and that he had a severely decreased LV systolic function with global hypokinesis. His ejection fraction was severely reduced to 9%, and he also had moderately to severely decreased right ventricular function. It also showed severe tricuspid regurgitation and had an estimated pulmonary arterial systolic pressure of 43 millimeters of mercury. So if we remember, his prior echocardiogram had shown an EF of 30%. So this is significantly reduced to now about 10%, despite being on guideline-directed medical therapy. So after the echocardiogram was done, he had a right heart cath, and this showed that his right atrial pressure was 18 millimeters of mercury. His RV pressure was 35 over 18. Pulmonary artery pressure was 35 over 25 with a mean pressure of 28. And his mean pulmonary capillary wedge pressure was 23 millimeters of mercury. His mixed venous saturation at that time was 39%. And his cardiac output and cardiac index by FIC were 1.8 and one. 0 liters, respectively. His PVR, or pulmonary vascular resistance, was 2.7 woods units. So all of it together, it shows that he has a severely depressed cardiac output, a narrow PA pulse pressure, and an elevated CVP to wedge ratio, which makes us concerned for both left-sided heart failure and right-sided heart failure, which in the picture of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy is something that we always want to think about. So he also had an endomyocardial biopsy performed at this time um, and had a PA catheter in place. So I think the most important thing we find out with this data is just that he has biventricular dysfunction. So another piece of evidence that supports his diagnosis of biventricular dysfunction, particularly regarding the right ventricle, is something called the pulmonary artery pulsatility index. So what that is and how you calculate it is pulmonary artery systolic pressure, subtract pulmonary artery diastolic pressure over the right atrial pressure. When we calculate his out, it's 0.6, which in this particular patient is definitely just very reduced. That's a really, really good point. And again, supportive of RV dysfunction. You know, one of the ways that I grasped the concept of PAPI is I started thinking about the right ventricle. And I know that the right ventricle is incredibly preload dependent. And we also know that a pulse pressure is indicative of how well a chamber of the heart is squeezing, like we talked about earlier with the left ventricle pulse pressure. 
So when we're dealing with the right ventricle, we know that we expect a good pulse pressure from a good RV. But we also know that if you, uh, not recommending doing this, but in the times of phlebotomy, say you over phlebotomize for some illness that you were trying to get the good humors to fix or whatever, and now they are almost exsanguinated, their RV's preload is going to be so low that their RV will become dysfunctional because of that. And so you're going to ultimately get a low pulsatility index from that RV. But because the filling pressure is going to be so low, the PAPI is not going to be overall much lower. So that's kind of telling you that the RV may intrinsically be okay, but this is actually a preload problem. Whereas in our case, we have a CVP of 18 millimeters of mercury, which is obviously abnormally high, and we only have a pulse pressure of 18. That is something that tells us that we have a sick right ventricle. So that's kind of letting us know that we have a marker of dysfunction in a hypervolemic state, which is obviously a problem. Yeah, that was great. Thank you for helping me think about what the PAPI means. All right. So I think I kind of slipped it in there that this gentleman got a endomyocardial biopsy. So I think we should probably discuss when you want to get endomyocardial biopsies, because obviously it's not something we do on every single patient who comes in. So there's a good algorithm that I found from a paper about fulminant heart failure. And the first step in it is to think about a patient with an unexplained acute cardiomyopathy. And then going through it, does this patient require inotropic or mechanical circulatory support? Do they they have some arrhythmias like Mobit type 2, second degree or higher heart block, or sustained ventricular tachycardia? Or is there a failure to respond to guideline-based medical management within one to two weeks? So our patient currently falls into the failing guideline-directed medical therapy. He was on it for about six weeks, and he still continued to to compensate. So yes to one of those questions, which indicates he does need an endomyocardial biopsy. So if you answer no to these questions, what you can do instead of getting an endomyocardial biopsy is get a cardiac MRI, which shows you different characteristics in the tissue. And for a deeper dive on this, you should listen to Cardio Nerds episode 33 to learn a little bit more. Cool. That's a great and very simple schema, Rachel. I really appreciate it. I remember thinking through my medical school training and in residency, the question was always in my mind, why don't we just get a biopsy on everyone? And, you know, I remember reading that while very significant aren't extremely common, but I think a bigger issue is with sort of the sensitivity and specificity of the test. So more common and more worrisome are that because this is just a small piece of tissue in the myocardium where in most diseases that tend to be patchy, you know, if we're trying to biopsy for things like myocarditis, there's just a very high likelihood of a false negative. There's just a really high rate that even if someone who does have the disease, we're not going to get any evidence of that. And therefore we're going to be putting a patient through, you know, a potentially risky procedure for something that wouldn't have that high of a yield. So that rationale has always made sense to me and why it supports you your schema, you know, in deciding to only biopsy people who truly need it. Only biopsying someone where your clinical suspicion is high enough and characterizing that as people who, you know, need inotropic or mechanical circulatory support or people who have unstable arrhythmias or people who are sliding on their goal-directed medical therapy. You know, these are all really significant where it's helpful to have an answer and would be beneficial to rule out some of the processes that we can only rule out with an endomyocardial biopsy. You know, Rachel and Sean, these are all excellent points. And, you know, before we move on, I, I really do want to just dive a little bit deeper through the schema that Rachel kind of outlined here. The initial thought process for pursuing a biopsy is I can't explain what's going on. 
So I need some more definitive answers for why this is happening. And part of also pursuing a biopsy and an MRI or both is how sick the patient is, right? You know, going down to the MRI may not be an option for patients that are on mechanical circulatory support, or almost certainly won't be while they're on mechanical circulatory support. And then even pursuing endomyocardial biopsy is really going to be operator dependent. And some catheterization labs may not have the capability of that. So again, this is a, a really important step here in the diagnostic process is, do we pursue a biopsy? Do we pursue an MRI? Are we able to pursue either one? Do we pursue one to guide the other? Specifically, do we obtain an MRI to guide whether we'll do an endomyocardial biopsy? You know, and again, as Rachel mentioned, we can listen to episode 33 regarding cardiac MRI with Dr. Debbie Kwan. But there are some characteristic findings. Like, let's say for the patient, we find that on an MRI that they have evidence of legatolinium enhancement, specifically in the basal inferior interventricular septum, specifically in the RV side. That's going to be pretty specific for our sarcoid. And so that may guide exactly where we may do a, a biopsy. And then furthermore, you know, the idea that we have an unexplained acute cardiomyopathy and they may have a bradyarrhythmia, that may really begin to narrow our differential because there's only certain myocarditis or myocardial processes that will have bradyarrhythmias as a prominent feature. And that includes things like Chagas, certainly was amongst our differential here, sarcoid, and then specifically like systemic autoimmune processes. And if we go back to our schema, that may guide kind of the next steps here. And then also importantly, when we're doing an endomyocardial biopsy, we have to remember this is in a sick heart and we just poked it. We prodded it. We then ripped a little bit of tissue from it. The heart is not going to like that. And it's possible that an endomyocardial biopsy can subsequently trigger further ventricular arrhythmias. So patients that pursue endomyocardial biopsy, it's not necessarily a benign process and may need to be on mechanical circulatory support before even pursuing it so that they can handle the biopsy in this acute phase. Beautiful, guys. So what I'm hearing is class one indications for endomyocardial biopsy is new onset heart failure, less than two weeks duration associated with a normal size or dilated left ventricle and hemodynamic compromise, which our patient is kind of out of the two week window. But option two to get your class one indication for a biopsy is new onset heart failure of two weeks to three months duration associated with dilated left ventricle and a new ventricular arrhythmias, second or third degree heart block, or failure to respond to usual care within one to two weeks. These are from our AHA ACC guidelines. So definitely see how we got to this point. So guys, tell us what happened next. All right. So after the pathology came back, it showed diffuse infiltration of the myocardium by a heterogeneous infiltrate composed of abundant lymphocytes, eosinophils, plasma cells, and scattered prominent multinucleated giant cells consistent with giant cell myocarditis. So as we talked about, when we're thinking about why we want to get biopsies on these patients, you know, it's really helpful when we get a diagnosis. But in giant cell myocarditis specifically, these giant cells actually only appear after one to two weeks. So if you do it too early, you might misdiagnose someone instead with a necrotizing eosinophilic myocarditis because the giant cells aren't present yet. So it's important to think about the timing when you do these biopsies. And one of the other reasons we didn't take this patient for MRI is because he was too unstable for an MRI. But if he'd had one, it would show a diffuse abnormality in T1 and T2 mapping and images. So after the diagnosis of giant cell myocarditis was made, he was initiated on prednisone and cyclosporine 50 POBID, which was later increased to 70 milligrams POBID in six days in specific treatment of his giant cell myocarditis. This is an extremely rare diagnosis. It, it can be fatal if the diagnosis is not made. Kudos to all of you for making this really tough diagnosis. 
Just some quick background points about giant cell myocarditis is exactly what Karen said. It's extremely rare. In my mind, it's about a, a one in a million diagnosis. Some of the literature that I read said 0.13 cases per 100,000 people. So it doesn't get much rarer than that. It is an acute myocarditis, as is pretty obvious. It has infiltration of the myocardium with giant cells and primarily T lymphocytes. And it often just affects the myocardium in isolation without a lot of extra cardiac manifestations. Uh, a typical patient can present sort of just like Mr. J that we have in this case here, often with acute or sort of subacute cardiogenic shock that worsens despite what therapy that you give them. Uh, oftentimes, they have ventricular arrhythmias that lead them to be pretty unstable. Giant cell myocarditis is a, is a really good reason to get an endomyocardial biopsy. Just like entities like cardiac sarcoidosis or eosinophilic myocarditis that Rachel mentioned, it really is one that needs pathology. And it needs it not just so that we can document the diagnosis, but these things really do change our management. Because when you see those multinucleated giant cells with the a high count of CD3 positive cells, those T lymphocytes, you know, you know you need to aggressively immunosuppress these patients. And also like Rachel mentioned, they typically are on a cyclosporine-involving regimen that involves some pretty high-dose steroids and can also involve other immunosuppressants, things like azathioprine or mycophenolate or even antithymocyte immunoglobulin, things that are really, really going to shut down that autoimmune response that's attacking the myocardium and, and causing the inflammation. In terms of prognosis, even in patients that get treated aggressively with the immunosuppression, while they do better, there's still a really high rate of transplant or mortality even at about a year. I've seen some studies that say at the six-month mark for mortality or heart transplant is up to 90%. So this really is a disease that has a malignant course. And if there's anything to take away from the case, it's really that, is someone who's having unstable arrhythmias or worsening despite goal-directed medical therapy or has cardiogenic shock for an unclear reason. You know, giant cell is always one that might be sort of knocking around in the back of my head. While it's something we don't see every day, it's something we shouldn't forget. It's like one of those diagnoses that are rare, but so catastrophic and intervenable that we want everybody to be aware of it so that you got to look for it. And again, back to our schematic for myocarditis, the first step of making a diagnosis of myocarditis is to suspect myocarditis and build a case for myocarditis. But even if you make the diagnosis of giant cell myocarditis and you start immunosuppressive agents, it's not going to be an on and off switch. It's not going to melt those inflammatory cells away. And you're going to have to support your patient through whatever process they're about to be going through. And they may get worse before they get better. So that being said, what ended up happening and what was your strategy taking your patient forward? Yeah. So despite starting this patient on prednisone and cyclosporine, he did continue to worsen. He was started on dobutamine and milrinone, and they were titrated to 7.5 micrograms per kilogram per minute and 0.25 micrograms per kilogram per minute, respectively. He had another right heart cath while on these medications, and it showed a right atrial pressure of 13 millimeters of mercury, an RV pressure of 44 over 13, pulmonary artery pressure of 44 over 20, a mean pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 27. His mixed venous saturation was 41% and his cardiac output and cardiac index by FIC were 2.2 and 1.3 liters respectively. So this shows that despite dual inotropic therapy, Mr. J continued to have severe RV and LV failure. At this point, it was pretty clear that he was failing medical therapy alone. So Hirsch, what other options do we have? 
Wow. Thanks, Rachel. I mean, this patient has gone through a lot. Just to recap, we have this young male with recently new diagnosis of giant cell myocarditis, who's presenting now with his second episode of decompensated heart failure within a few weeks, despite being on goal-directed medical therapy, with exam and lab findings suggestive of a low output state, likely due to biventricular failure, but not appropriately responding to medical therapy, which includes entropy, which you mentioned. So, you know, the decision we have to make is, do we have anything else in our tool box as cardiologists that we can use to help this patient. I would say maybe 20, 30 years ago, we wouldn't have many options. But I think, you know, due to the advancements in biomedical engineering, we have technologies called mechanical circulatory support, which we can provide to these patients. And before I dive into, you know, what mechanical circulatory support is or what types of devices we have, let me just briefly talk about the indications for mechanical circulatory support. And these indications are based Based on just clinical and hemodynamic criteria, there's no hard and set fast rule. But typically, if you have a patient who is failing multiple inotropies, also having a low you know, systolic pressure, less than 80, or having a low cardiac index, less than 1.8, or signs of distal low perfusion, which includes low urine output or end-stage renal disease due to the cardiomyopathy, these are indications that you want to further support your patient with mechanical circulatory support. You know, other indications would be refractory ventricular arrhythmias, or oftentimes, at least in post-cardiotomy syndrome, in cabbage patients who are unable to be weaned off of bypass. Myocarditis, of course, is another indication for MCS if it doesn't get better. So, you know, there aren't really good detailed criteria as to, you know, this patient deserves this type of MCS, whereas this patient deserves another, just simply because this is a relatively new and booming field. And I'm sure there's going to be more data in the future. That being said, the next thing I want to bring up is how we're going to aggregate all this data. Everything is based off what we call the Intermax criteria, which is basically a North American national registry for mechanical circulatory support devices that are used to treat advanced heart failure. It helps us determine how urgent or what clinical profile does this patient fit and how urgent do we need to act on this patient. The Intermax profiles are about seven different profiles, with Intermax 1 being the most acute life-threatening situation and Intermax 7 being more stable heart failure. So Intermax 1 would be a patient who comes in crashing and burning, critical cardiogenic shock, MAPS in the 40s, end organ damage, and they need, you know, mechanical support within hours, whereas Intermax 2 would be a progressively decline of a patient's cardiogenic shock despite being on inotropes. And in this particular case, this patient fits the Intermax 2 profile, and that would relate to needing mechanical circulatory support at least within the next few days, if not weeks. And so going off that, the first clinical decision point we as a team had to make once it was determined that this patient needed advanced mechanical support, is what type of support should we provide? We knew his myocarditis was affecting both his LV and his RV, leading to biventricular failure. So just talking about LV support first, our goals were we want to reduce afterload, we want to increase his cardiac output or power, we want to reduce his preload, and just overall reduce his myocardial oxygen demand. 
you have to understand that giant cell myocarditis is a pro-inflammatory condition. And as is cardiogenic shock, there are a lot of inflammatory cytokines involved with that. So you want to try to quote unquote, rest your heart as much as possible in this situation. So the options we had going forward were either an intra-aortic balloon pump or an impella, which is basically a percutaneous left ventricular assist device. The basic principle of an intra-aortic balloon pump is that it works on the principle of counter pulsation. So that basically means that the balloon inflates during diastole, during which its goal is to increase coronary perfusion, and deflates during systole, during which the goal is to increase forward flow via a mechanism similar to like a vacuum sucking blood from the LV into the aorta. And it provides up to an additional of 0.5 to a liter of flow per minute. So one of the main factors in this patient's case was his cardiac output was so low despite two inotropes, and his quote-unquote pulsatility was so diminished that we didn't believe a balloon pump would provide enough support for the patient. So alternatively, we decided to place an impella, which provides an additional 2.5 liters to 4 liters of flow. There are various types of devices. They're differentiated by the amount of flow they provide, but that's a discussion that'll be way too detailed. This device, an impella, is basically a continuous flow microaxial pump that sits in the LV across the aortic valve, and the blood is drawn into the impella from the left ventricle and expelled into the ascending aorta, taking over the pumping function of your heart. So once this was done, unfortunately, the patient's cardiodynamics didn't improve. So a higher level of support with an Impella 5.0, which is five liters of support, was used. And the added benefit for this was this is actually inserted by the uh, upper extremity. So the patients are able to be mobile on this device, which was really important for this young patient as well. But despite supporting his left ventricle, we were hoping, you know, that with eventual support of his left ventricle, his right ventricle would recover. But unfortunately, this was not the case. And so his right ventricle continued to deteriorate. So right ventricular support was initiated. And right ventricular support was started with something called a right ventricular assist device, which is basically either an impella, which is placed through the groin, or a device that can be inserted through the right IJ. It's a big, huge, huge, huge catheter. More, It's bigger than like, do you remember the bubble tea straws? The catheter is like a bubble tea straw. The right ventricular assist device is about 29 to 31 French. It's a dual lumen catheter placed through the right IJ with the outflow end being the pulmonary artery and the inflow being the right atria. So basically, you know, pulls blood from the right atria, bypasses your right ventricle and puts it into the pulmonary artery. The benefit of this device was that it was able to be placed through the right IJ, which means the patient could still be mobile. And secondly, with this type of device, you can always attach an oxygenator to it. So it kind of acts like a ECMO circuit. So in case the patient developed pulmonary edema or was getting more hypoxic, there's always that option, that safeguard that we have that we can attach to this device. So this is what we did. And his cardiopulmonary status did improve. And over the next few days, his left-sided impella was exchanged for something more permanent and more durable, such as a durable LVAD that you guys may have heard of, such as the HeartMate 3s, with the goals of hopefully a heart transplantation. Over the next few days, his RV function improved and his RVAD was removed. You know, discussing all of this, I think one other question that people may have, why was this patient not placed on ECMO? 
And the reason for that is actually just placing these patients who have cardiogenic shock on VA ECMO actually increases their afterload and their LVEDP and can actually push them into pulmonary edema. So a strategy is that the term venting the ECMO machine has been thrown around, which is basically using ECMO with an impella or ECMO with a balloon pump, something to unload the LV as well. Hirsch, that was an amazing whirlwind tour of the approach to mechanical circulatory support for patients in general, but then also how you attacked the pathophysiology of this particular patient. And I definitely appreciate the idea of a sequential evaluation of the RV because, yeah, while we have RV and LV failure, and while we had evidence that the RV probably would have required support initially, there are times that offloading the RV's pressure by reducing the wedge pressure can make a very, very big difference in terms of RV contractility itself and in terms of the RV mechanics. And potentially there is a a possibility that the RV will improve. You know, this is not a similar case at all, but taking care of some COVID patients, and this is totally anecdotal, just so everybody knows, we had patients that would come in with severe hypoxic respiratory distress. And sometimes some rescue maneuvers were done with the vents such that they were remained on high pulmonary pressures, such as using vent settings as APRV, where patients are actually largely left on higher pressures, which given their hypoxia, they ended up having core pulmonary. And, you know, looking at the RV, you could see these poor RVs were struggling with that. And you would look at that RV and be like, wow, this RV is done. But when you remove the pressure on the RV, you're able to manipulate the vent settings, bring down the pressures, potentially get them more optimized from a volume status perspective. You find that there are remarkable improvements in RV function, and it could even be over the course of hours. And so I appreciate that you guys took a stepwise approach to assess the RV and the LV. And I also appreciate your points that you made about ECMO. You know, ECMO does have this really high afterload state on the ventricle, and it really could make a sick ventricle worse. Let's say this patient presented and we never had a biopsy. We never were able to get an MRI, which may be the case at certain hospitals around the country. And you made the decision to place the patient on biventricular support as this patient ended up being on for some time. One of the things that can potentially clue you into a diagnosis of what the cause of the myocarditis is how they recover on that biventricular mechanical support or even just that LV support. Lymphocytic myocarditis tends to spontaneously recover in many patients if they are appropriately treated with guideline-directed therapy and if they're in cardiogenic shock appropriately unloaded with mechanical support. However, giant cell myocarditis will not improve generally. Now, this is not hard and fast rules, but it could clue you into potentially what your diagnosis is and what you're dealing with. And again, I'm just I'm blown away by the team here. I, I would not expect anything less of the, the best city in the world, Philadelphia. Yeah. And Karen, I think you make a great point with how giant cell myocarditis typically might not improve with IV support. And in fact, that leads me to his clinical course, which unfortunately, even after he had his LVAD placed, he had returned back to the hospital after being discharged for worsening progression of his RV failure. And so at that point, the decision had to be made that, you know, this patient is young, he has no other comorbidities. And the question was, can we get him a heart? Rachel, what are your thoughts? So cardiac transplantation is pretty complicated and getting listed for transplant is difficult. So this patient was initially evaluated for an LVAD, but this was because of his immigration status and his lack of insurance. He was ultimately determined to be a good candidate for LVAD as destination therapy rather than bridge to transplant, and he was able to get emergency Medicaid. So I think whenever we're thinking about transplantation in a patient, it's important to think of the patient kind of as a whole 
person with a whole social support. We have a lot of systems in place, at least at Thomas Jefferson. We have social workers and transplant coordinators. We have psychiatry who helps us to determine if people are good transplant candidates. And one of those reasons is because it's it's very expensive. In 2011, in my literature review, the average billable charge for a cardiac transplant was approximately a million dollars in the first year alone. So that was over 10 years ago. So you can only imagine how much more expensive it is now. And then $30,000 per year in the subsequent years after transplantation. So when you're thinking about what you want to do for this patient, like Mr. J, you don't want to just put a new heart in someone who you're going to financially ruin because of saving their life. So I think that was something that they really thought about when they were thinking about LVAD versus transplant in this patient. Another thing to think about is that available hearts are a very scarce resource. There's only about 15 to 2,000 hearts available per year. So again, you, you really have to think about who would best qualify for these hearts. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Rachel. So this is this was really tricky. I don't remember where I was in my training at this point with this patient. I know I, I think I'd finished residency at this point, but it was hard watching a patient with a debilitating giant cell myocarditis get a VAD when, you know, in the long term, we all sort of hoped that and eventually he did, but but hoped that he would get a heart transplantation. But I think it's just important to note the, the barriers and the, the complexities that go along with getting uh, a transplantation and why making that decision takes time. You know, these are great points, Rachel and Sean. There's so much to comprehend and so much at stake when we pull the triggers of these very important life-saving therapies. So I definitely want to hear what ended up happening next. Did he get a transplant and how did that go? Approximately one month later, he was successfully transplanted. He was discharged in stable condition on an immunosuppressive regimen with close heart failure follow-up and planned biopsies. Initially, the immediate post-transplantation biopsies did not show any rejection. And then approximately two months after the transplantation, he did have evidence of giant cell myocarditis on his pathology. He was asymptomatic at that time, but he was admitted into the hospital and started on high-dose steroids for that admission. This was a, a really interesting learning point for me because in this admission, I didn't really grasp how severe giant cell myocarditis was, not only in its initial acute presentation, but also in how relentless it is. I saw that in up to 20 to 25% of patients who have a transplant for their giant cell myocarditis, they can have recurrence in the new transplanted heart. Typically, this is treated with high-dose steroids or other immunosuppressants, but because it's such an incredibly rare disease, there isn't a lot of recommendations or a lot of good data on what the correct immunosuppression regimen is. Fortunately, it does tend to be responsive to immunosuppressive therapy. And then for our patient in particular, two weeks later on another repeat endomyocardial biopsy, there was no further giant cell myocarditis noted. Just a little Jefferson plug, we actually performed a systematic review on outcomes of mechanical circulatory support for giant cell myocarditis. And by we, I definitely don't include myself. I don't take any credit for this. I want to give a shout out to Dr. Rame, Dr. Alvarez, Dr. Pirlamarla, and Dr. Cooper, Dr. Massey, and Dr. Entwistle, who were instrumental in performing the systematic review, and Dr. Priyal Patel, who was first author in this paper, and basically showed that immunosuppression started prior to mechanical circulatory support was associated with significantly better survival than mechanical circulatory support alone. You know, Hirsch, Rachel, and Sean, this was such a fantastic discussion. We started with an undifferentiated patient in the emergency department that was quickly sliding in terms of their clinical status. And we went through the differential for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, myocarditis. You took us on a whirlwind tour of 
hemodynamics, mechanical circulatory support, taught us about inflammatory cardiomyopathy. I feel like I just completed a board review course in the span of a little over an hour. This is just fantastic. And I'm so glad that we got to join you guys here today. Do you have some final learning points for us? Yeah, thanks, Karan. I'm happy to give some pearls and takeaways. If you finish listening to the episode and you want to just have a couple things stick with you about what giant cell myocarditis is, I would say that giant cell is very rare. It's a rare form of myocarditis, typically associated with cardiogenic shock or arrhythmic instability. It needs an endomyocardial biopsy to diagnose it and differentiate it from other types of myocarditis. For the hemodynamic part of it, I want to say that a big takeaway would be that pulmonary artery pulsatility index that Rachel mentioned earlier, which is not always calculated or not always seen in our right heart catheterization reports, but is a really good tool for assessing RV failure. I want to bring up what Hirsch mentioned about MCS. And for us and our, our patients with giant cell, MCS is often a, a needed bridge to heart transplant. Uh, and I want to echo what Hirsch said about what intra-aortic balloon pumps are, that they're counterpulsation. And while helpful in a lot of patients, they're not typically helpful in our giant cell patients because of how sick they are and the shock and the inability to actually have counterpulsation. And then rounding out the treatment of our giant cell patient, I want to just reemphasize that you need early and aggressive immunosuppression with a multi-drug regimen and follow-up biopsies as you would with a normal transplanted heart because in 20 to 25% of transplanted hearts, you do have recurrence and need repeat aggressive immunosuppression. So those are just my essential takeaways from giant cell and from this presentation. Really quickly, my first exposure to this very rare but very interesting cardiac pathology was when I was an intern interested in cardiology on a cardiology service. And I remember for whatever small miracle having like a brief window of time in the morning. And I just so happened to pull up the New England Journal case of the week. And it was like a 53-year-old man with cardiogenic shock and ventricular arrhythmias. And I just pulled it up and I read the title and I was like, oh man, this is going to be a great article. And I started reading and just, it was a sick patient. They got sicker and sicker. And as I was reading, the cardiology fellow on the service was walking behind me. And it was Ryan Watson, who I think now is an interventional fellow at the Brigham. And he's walking behind me and he peers over my shoulder and he says, oh, you're reading about a case of giant cell myocarditis. And he walked away. And I'd never heard of giant cell myocarditis at that point before because it was so rare and, and so new to me. And although I never do this, I skipped all the way down to the bottom and I looked at the diagnosis and it was this disease I'd never heard of before, giant cell myocarditis. And I just, I was in awe of how he knew the diagnosis just from reading the title. I don't know what your takeaways from that, but my takeaways are that this is a really interesting disease that obviously has a lot of teaching points. You guys are just absolutely fantastic. This was a very thorough discussion about a very challenging case. And although we had a great time discussing the case, we obviously recognize that our patient went through a lot. We are very appreciative and we wish him well. But that being said, we kind of heard what makes Sean's heart flutter, but we definitely want to hear a little bit from Hirsch and Rachel about what makes your heart flutter about cardiology or about anything in life that just allows you to get through the day and do your craft and just give you a sense of wellness and happiness. Yeah, I think cardiology is really just such a great field to be in. For me, what gets my heart fluttering is getting to be there when patients are often at their most scared, their most vulnerable. I think patients at this point are so aware of heart disease that when you say something's wrong with your heart, it can just ruin their day, their week, their month. And so being on that journey with them to be there, there's sort of this reassurance, this person who can listen to them and guide them through what can be a very scary process. That's one of the things I love the most about cardiology. 
one thing that gets my heart going is there's just so many unknowns that you can never be complacent in this field. If you think you know something, there's always like a twist that can happen. You know, you always got to be on your feet. You always got to be thinking outside the box as well. And there's so much to learn in cardiology that's impossible to just ever be satisfied. And I think that's that's the greatest thing. I was really scared when I was taking care of this patient. I thought he was just going to crash. I felt so bad for him. He's just so young. He had a fiance that he loved. But the one really positive thing about this entire ordeal is he was actually able to get married in the hospital. So that was really cool. Oh my God. Wow. What a way to end. Sean, Hirsch, Rachel, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for sharing all of the teaching that you've done. And thanks for giving us a glimpse into your lives in Philadelphia. And Karin, this is our first podcast recorded together. I hope it went well. (laughs) I hope I was a good wingman. And yeah, with that, let's wrap it up. Thanks, guys, so much for having us. Next time you're in town, uh, come on over. We'll go to Independence Beer Garden, and then we'll go get some bagels and or donuts. My vote is for donuts. I don't think the bagels are that great in Philly. And now, the ECPR segment by Dr. Enrico Emirati. Dr. Enrico Emirati is an assistant professor of cardiology and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist in Milan, Italy, at the Nicaragua Hospital with a special research interest and expertise in acute myocarditis and heart failure. Hello, I'm Enrico Mirati. I'm going to talk about giant cell myocarditis. It's a very rare disease. It's about one in 100 or 200 cases of acute myocarditis, and it's about 10% of all cases of fulminant myocarditis. Fulminant myocarditis means an acute myocarditis that needs inotropic or mechanical circular support, as in the case that we have seen. The high mortality rate and the need for transplantation is confirmed in recent international series and we have about an 85% of need for transplant or mortality after three years from the presentation of uh, a giant cell myocarditis. Giant cell myocarditis is considered an autoimmune disorder with a not clear etiology. It's believed that it's mainly T-cell mediated, so the therapy are targeting this kind of cell. About 20% of giant cell myocarditis have an autoimmune disorder that is associated to this condition, in particular inflammatory bowel disease and thyroid disorders, but also other systemic autoimmune disorders are quite common, like systemic lupus erythematosus. And if we look at the median age of onset is between 43 and 53 years, and it is slightly higher comparing with other cases of lymphocytic myocarditis. Giant cell myocarditis frequently present as acute heart failure or cardiogenic shock, as in this case, and with ventricular tachycardia or ventricular atrioventricular bro, and that can mimic, for instance, cardiac sarcoidosis presentation. The differential diagnosis is mainly with other kind of acute myocarditis like lymphocytic and eosinophilic or cardiac sarcoidosis. The biopsy is the main tool to reach the diagnosis. Biopsy is uh, histology is characterized by the presence of giant cells together with the presence of eosinophils and lymphocytic cells. 
In particular, eosinophils can be an important feature to differentiate giant cell myocarditis from cardiac sarcoidosis where eosinophils are rarely reported. And again, cardiac sarcoidosis generally has the presence of granuloma that is not seen in giant cell myocarditis. So the first point is to recognize that the patient has a cardiogenic shock to stabilize hemodynamically the patient. In most cases, an VA ECMO or an impella are needed together with inotropic drugs. Then endomyocardial biopsy is needed and the better is to perform an endomyocardial biopsy as soon as possible and then to decide the immunosuppression. As personal experience, immunosuppression should be very aggressive. So we generally treat this patient as an induction of a heart transplant. So we administer high dosage of intravenous methylprednisolone associated with anti-T-hemoglobin. So we generally administer one gram methylprednisolone in association with one milligram per kilogram of antitimocyte globally. And the next days we started with a calcineurin inhibitor like cyclosporin. It is important to recognize that if you have a patient with a giant cell myocarditis but without cardiogenic shock, you can decide to associate prednisone or intravenous methylprednisolone with cyclosporin without antitimocyte globulins. Another important point is that immunosuppression must be maintained for a long time. That means that patients are on prednisone plus cyclosporin for at least one year and in the long term patients generally remain on cyclosporin. Recurrence of giant cell myocarditis have been described when there is a withhold of cyclosporin. An important point is that also in patients that receive a heart transplant, a recurrence of giant cell myocarditis can occur. That means that immunosuppression probably must be higher comparing with other reasons of heart transplant. So looking at the case that has been presented, first of all, the first comment is regarding the initial discharge. So probably in a relatively young patient, it's important to reach the final diagnosis of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, in particular to reach a diagnosis of inflammatory cardiomyopathy. So in that sense, an early cardiac magnetic resonance can be important or during hospitalization or early after discharge. Second point is that in patients like this, when you have, I would say, a profound cardiogenic shock with one of cardiac index with very low oxygen saturation at pulmonary artery catheterization, I believe that an aggressive approach with mechanical circular support is needed. And in our experience, we prefer in this kind of subject VA ECMO because it can support both ventricles and we generally manage the left ventricle filling with a counterpulsation or with a combination of vasodilator and vasopressor so we generally do not need a vent for the left ventricle. In our experience when you start with immunosuppressive drug in particular in patients with cardiogenic shock as I said we prefer the use of anti-tymocyte globally 
immunoglobulin. And generally, we need to wait for a quite long time to have a recovery because the inflammatory infiltration is so high that before the recovery of the stunning of the cardiomyocytes, it takes a long time. That means that when we had just one out of five patients in the last 20 years we managed in our hospital with a full recovery. And in this case, the patient needed 21 days on ECMO before full recovery. So an important message is if the patient is stable on mechanical circulatory support without significant complications, in particular bleeding or, or problem of thrombosis, it's important to wait. You can also consider to follow this patient with uh, looking at troponin release, several serial echocardiograms to see if there is an improvement. And another point is if you are able to discharge this patient, generally it's useful to perform a cardiac magnetic resonance imaging to see if there is a large amount of fibrosis. And we generally suggest a defibrillator for this patient. At least in our case, after discharge, our patient had a ventricular tachycardia after three months. So it was hemodynamically stable. So the patient needed a defibrillator later after that. And in this case, we excluded a recurrence of giant cell myocarditis. And that's all. Thank you.